Our God and our Father, we do rejoice today, O Lord, in all that you have given us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for him, the last Adam, our prophet, priest, and king, the mediator of the new covenant, uh, the one who sacrificed himself for us, satisfied your law, and has secured your love for us all eternally. And we come to you through him, and we ask that we would know him more. We pray that you would use our time together now uh, in teaching, in catechism, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, uh, that more and more, Father, uh, we would know what he is like, what he has done, what you have done for us through him. We pray also that you would bless the, the respective classes with all the little ones, these precious lambs of yours. Bless the teachers. May they continue to be instructed in the historic Christian faith. And may we grow, O oh Lord, all to your glory and to your praise. Thank you for this opportunity. And we ask that our conversation would be edifying to, one, to ourselves and, and uh, to one another and glorifying to you. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16. A little off track. I mean, today is Lord's Day 8, right? Yeah. On, the, on our bulletin, it says the 8th Lord's Day, but um, we're at Lord's Day 16. And so, uh, one more time, it, uh, just remember that the three parts of the catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude. So easy to remember. Uh, very helpful, very important. That's the way that the book of Romans flows. Uh, so we go through grace, or we go through uh, guilt in uh, those first 11 questions or so. And then the grace section is the largest, and it has an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, along with the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon, are, those are some of the earliest creeds. Creed just mean, uh, comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Uh, it's a statement of faith. But it's not just one particular church that says, here's our statement of faith. It's the whole church universal uh, that says, these are the boundaries of Christianity. Um, if we deny anything in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, we have a different religion than Christianity. And, uh, and so that means we want to know what we're talking about in the Creed. That's where the Catechism helps us. The Catechism goes through each line. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. That's the point where we're at today. So we've looked at all those lines, but we're coming now to died, buried, uh, he descended into hell. And that line might bring us a little bit of uh, nervousness or you know, wondering, why is that line in there? What does that mean? Um, and it's in, you know, this ancient, universal, essential creed of Christianity, and um, what do we mean by that? The Heidelberg helps us. So let's go to Lord's Day 16, questions 40, 41, 42, 43, and one of my all-time faves, 44. Why did Christ have to go all the way to death? Okay, so where was death first mentioned in, uh, in the Bible, in, in the redemptive story? Genesis, what, what happened there? You remember? What happened there? Where, where was death threatened? If they, not from the tree of life, the other one, the tree of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? 
So they could have anything they wanted in the garden. The garden's beautiful. God gives abundant provision, more than is necessary. And uh, he makes a covenant with Adam, saying a covenant is is a solemn agreement. It can either be you know, agreed upon mutually between two people, or it can be unilaterally imposed, which in this case it was when God created the man. As Genesis 2.15 says, he, he put the man in the garden to work the garden and to guard the garden, to uh, protect the garden, keep it. And he gave Adam things to do, name the animals, procreate, subdue the earth, um, bring him glory, and he gives Adam a, a, uh, an example of how he is to live six days of labor, one day of rest. Um, you know, God describes his creative activity in that way so that humans would uh, follow that. And so Adam's in a covenant, and if, he's, if he is faithful in his covenant, he, gets to, uh, he, he will earn for himself and all those whom he represents, the whole human race, uh, glorified life. Not just eternal life, but glorified eternal life. But life superabundant. Life even better. Life at a whole new realm. And uh, so we have to remember that. When Jesus is glorified, uh, he, he is not merely coming back from the dead, but he, is, he has been now transformed and moved into a better state of physical existence. It's still physical existence, but it's a glorified physical existence. All of that is held out to Adam in the beginning. God says, however, if you eat of the one tree that I have forbidden you, in that day you shall surely die. Right. So death is held out as a sanction of that covenant. You know, covenants, when you enter into a covenant uh, with anything, there's always sanctions involved. Um, you know, if uh, your, your marriage is a covenant, if one spouse is unfaithful, there can be sanctions brought in, punishments, uh, consequences, things that aren't good. If I don't pay my mortgage, that fat bill each month, uh, that I agreement with the bank so that I can live in a home in San Diego, in an overpriced home in San Diego, uh, the, the, uh, then things will happen. Uh, they'll take the home away, I'll be homeless, and you know, bad things, sanctions. Same thing with the, in the covenant of works. Uh, the sanctions will be death. Death spiritual, which means no communion with God, no fellowship with God. Death physical, which means separation of body and soul. That's what death is. And death eternal, which means hell. And our section here, we'll get to that too. So death was the punishment. And, and that's why, incidentally, when you're reading Genesis... And you read in chapter 3 of the fall, and then chapter 4, there's the whole scene with Cain and Abel, the first murderer, institution of government, all that stuff. And then chapter 5, anybody know what Genesis chapter 5 is without looking at your iPhone or your Bible? Genealogy, good job. That was gold star for you. And, uh, and it's riveting, right, the genealogy. I mean, it's your favorite passage, and it's good bedtime reading. But it's actually really interesting, Genesis chapter 5, because it mentions this guy, and 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 this guy. And it says, this guy lived for this many years, and he died. It's this refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And it's making a point 
saying that uh, we're sinful now and we're all dying. This is why all people die, because we, we're sinners and we live under a cursed world. And so death, death seems kind of normal to us because all people die, and yet it's very abnormal. That's why we grieve and we're sad at death. That's why you, know, you don't go, you're happy at when someone's born. I mean, some of the babies were, oh, baby, you know, baby's born, everybody's happy. When someone dies, we don't do the same thing. I mean, we grieve. If somebody in your family dies, it breaks your heart. And it doesn't matter, even if you know that person, their soul has departed and gone to be with the Lord, it still hurts us inside as human beings because it gets to the very nature of who we are as human beings and to that original covenant that God made with uh, human beings in the garden. So when Genesis 5 says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, it's telling us now this is the condition of the world. So Jesus then, he comes as the second Adam. And as we saw, he comes into the world uh, supernaturally in the sense that he is conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he comes into the world as the only sinless human being since Adam and his wife Eve before the fall. And so now Christ is in a covenant of works like Adam. And Christ must accomplish everything that the Father has given him to do. Christ must be obedient, whereas Adam was disobedient. And, and, and he, so he's tempted, just like uh, Adam was, but he prevails. Uh, he, 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 is, uh, he has difficulties in front of him, things that he must accomplish, and, and yet he, he fulfills all of it. Uh, he fulfills all the demands of the law. In fact, the whole Mosaic law is just to show us that we need somebody who can do everything perfectly. And he comes as the true Israel, fulfilling all of the law. But he then dies. He then dies. And why did Christ have to go all the way to death? As uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, says the Son of God uh, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here it says, because God's justice and truth demand it. Only the death of God's Son could pay for our sin. But why did Jesus have to die if Jesus hadn't sinned? I mean, we die because we live in a cursed world and, and we're sinners. But Christ had no sin. Why did his body and soul have to separate? Someone said, for us. So what does that mean for us? That's right. So we don't have to. So what did it mean when Jesus was on the cross? What, what, what did he become on the cross? He became a curse. What else? Substitute. What else? He became a sinner. That's the word I was looking for. That's the mind-blowing word. He became a sinner. He never sinned himself. But our sins were laid on him. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Yeah, substitute. All your answers are right. But to think of Christ as a sinner on the cross... This is why he is under the justice of God. 
even though he had merited for himself no death at all because he is perfect. But there's an exchange that happens upon the cross. Our sin is imputed to him. The same way as Adam's sin was imputed to the whole human race, Christ is upon the cross, and now our sin is imputed to him. It's hard to fathom the Son of God being a sinner, you know, a thief, a murderer, a rapist, all of the filthy sins that he never committed. That's what he was. And God's justice and truth demanded. Only the death of God's Son could pay for our sin. Next question, 41. Any questions on that, number 40? Okay, question 41. Why was he buried? Well, testifies that he really died. Right. Any questions? Pretty simple. You know, sometimes we forget that, though. We think, you know, he was buried and, you know, we move on. But his burial testifies that he was really dead. And he was in the tomb till the third day. Um, he's dead. And, and, and here's the thing, too, about the, the death of Jesus Christ, is that in those days, cruci- crucifixions were uh, carried out very carefully by the Roman Empire. We talked a little bit about the Roman Empire, I think, last week or the week before, and how orderly they were. And when it came to crucifixion, this was something that they had perfected as a uh, mode of execution for non-Roman citizens. And so Rome, being a conquering empire, they were, they were also very orderly. They were, they were very much into, we're going to come take your land, and, but we're going to force you to live in peace. You're, you're going to have peace, but it's going to be forced peace. Uh, so that's the Pax Romana, as they call it. They had centuries, basically, of um, taking over countries and, and then enforcing peace. Uh, you know, taking taxes from you uh, and then building their roads, paying their military, and then having a governor like Pilate uh, be in that area. They would allow you to practice your religion because they want you to be happy. And they knew that religious people are generally moral people and we want people to be moral. That's the whole point of religion as they saw it as how most people see it today. Um, and, and then you'll even, we'll even give you your own little puppet king. So you still feel kind of like your people. And so with the Jews, they gave him Herod, but he's just a lackey of Rome. He has no power, really. They can't even execute criminals. They, they don't even have the ability to have uh, uh, capital punishment. The, only the Romans could do that. So they perfect this method of execution called crucifixion, where they put somebody on trial if he is, in fact, uh, uh, found guilty, uh, then uh, and for something worthy of capital punishment, he is scourged, beaten, tortured, put on a cross outside the city so people could see, and he's hoisted up naked, beaten, and you'd see people dying on these, on these crosses. This is all over the Roman Empire. It's not just in Judea. Um, if you saw the movie Gladiator, for example, that's supposed to take place. It's a fictitious story, but it's really interesting. It's supposed to take place in the second century uh, during the time of Marcus Aurelius and uh, the main character, um, Maximus, he, his, his wife and his child are crucified uh, unjustly uh, because that's what, that was a method of shame. And, but it was also it sent a very powerful message to people to maintain peace and don't be a lawbreaker. So when people would be crucified, they would leave them up there until they were dead. They'd be up there sometimes for days 
you know, and you suffocated slowly. They would, they, would, they would nail your hands and your feet to, this, to these two posts, and then you would push yourself up to get a breath. And, you know, you would do that. Some people would die in a few hours. Some people would die in, in, in a couple days. And uh, what happened with Jesus is that they were crucified, remember, on a Friday. And the Jews had asked, look, the Sabbath is Saturday. It's a holy day, and we don't want anybody hanging on a cross in our land. Can you please take them down? This, 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 was a, this was something they had worked out with the Roman Empire. So what the Romans would do is they would come by each guy, and if he was still alive, he's like, I'm not dead yet, you know, doing this. They would, they would break his legs so that he couldn't push himself up, and then you'd suffocate, and they'd take him down. So they, they, wanted, they wanted to appease the people that they ruled because they want people to live in peace, you know. They were like... Um, gentle tyrants, in a sense. And, uh, and so, then what, what, uh, when it get, you get to Jesus, what happened? Because remember, uh, they're breaking the legs, they get to Jesus, and, and what happened? He's already dead. And how, and how did they test to see if he was really dead? They took a, yeah, a spear, put him in the side, blood and water come out, indication of you know, ruptured heart and uh, trauma. They put him then in a tomb, and uh, they roll a stone over it. And he's there for days. The burial shows that he, his life has really expired, that he's really dead, that he wasn't um, you know, just hanging on for dear life. Uh, this is why it's amazing to me. I mean, it, does, it takes more faith, I think, to believe the objections to the resurrection of Christ than just the resurrection of Christ. To think, you know, one of the theories that has been floated by, um, like, 19th, 20th century liberal theology is uh, the swoon theory, that Jesus swooned everybody into thinking he was really dead. He was just mostly dead, kind of like Billy Crystal and, and Princess Bride, right? He's mostly dead. And uh, so he's, you know, he's been whipped 40 times. He's been beaten. His face is like rocky. He's, uh, he's I'm serious. That's what he looked like. He was puffed up. Your Lord was puffed up and, uh, in his face. And he's beaten to a pulp. His back is exposed, probably organs and bones. He's on a cross for six hours, uh, fighting for his life. They stab him with the sword, fakes everybody out. He's still alive. He goes into the tomb. They roll a stone over it. And I'm not kidding. This is the theory. The cool air inside the tomb slowly revived Jesus so that he, you know, started fighting off the bandages. And he comes out. Nobody really knows how he did it, maybe with the help of the disciples, but rolls away the tomb, fights off the Roman guard, because remember, the evidence shows that a Roman guard was put there because the, uh, the, the uh, Pharisees were so worried that the uh, disciples would come and steal the body. They said a Roman guard's there. Fishermen are not going to fight off uh, Roman guards. And, uh, and if, you, if, a, if a, a, a body was stolen, if you failed in anything as a Roman soldier, it could mean your life. And so uh, that's why you have, you know, remember in, in Acts chapter 16 with the earthquake and Paul and Silas were, were, were praying in prison and the, uh, the, remember the Roman guard, what was he going to do? He was going to kill himself because his, his honor's on the line. And he says, do, do, the, do thyself no harm, we are, all st- we are still here. Okay, so G- the, the idea is that Jesus and his disciples fight off the Romans and Jesus, who has been exposed to the most extreme punishment and death, is somehow alive, and now he goes around appearing to everybody. It, it, it takes, to me, more faith to believe in that than that God, 
who created the heavens and the earth brought him forth from the dead. Um, it, it just seems ridiculous. The burial is ultimately showing that he's really dead, that he really died, that he sunk all the way down into that horrible blackness and darkness that we call death. Since any questions on, on burial? Yeah. So this seems really simple, but also don't we look at the fact that he was buried, this fulfillment of this prophecy that he would be like Sure, yeah, it goes into the heart of the earth. That's yeah, many places in the Old Testament. Also, um, was I think it's Psalm 22, um, they, they made his grave with the rich, and so that's exactly what happened. Joseph of Arimathea took his, took his body. And there's many Old Testament fulfillments. Um, but the key, the, I think the thing that we really want to remember too, is uh, not only is he fulfilled uh, all of these prophecies of the Old Testament, but he really died. It wasn't just that he suffered, he really died. Because if he didn't really die, if he didn't really die, it means he didn't really raise again from the dead. And if he wasn't really raised from the dead, we have no salvation. It all hangs on that. So burial is pretty big here. If he, if he really wasn't dead, then we're just wasting our time uh, being, being Christians. So, All right, question 42. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death does not pay the debt of our sins. Rather, it puts us an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Our death puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. Now remember, at your death, you're not complete yet. This is really important. At death, body and soul separate. Your, your soul is who you are consciously, immaterially, apart from your body. And your body is who you are physically, materially, apart from your soul. Both body and soul make up you. But the, the soul is the stuff, if you will, of relationships and love and who you are uh, just apart from your body. Body and soul separate at death, and the body does not rise again from the dead until the last day when Jesus Christ returns. Uh, this is a, a, a misconception I think a lot of Christians have that upon death, okay, uh, my loved one has gone to be with the Lord, and then we kind of envision them as having a body and being with the Lord and, you know, Sometimes people even say things like, you know, they're running around, they're doing the, all the speculation. Um, that ultimately isn't helpful. It's not helpful. We don't know what that, we call it the intermediate state. The state between death and the last day. What we do know is it's better to depart this life and be with the Lord, Philippians 1. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. And we know that the body will be raised again on the last day. That's everywhere. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, on and on. Uh, we know that that person in their soul is not in pain, that they are with the Lord presently, and that's about it. We've got to stop there. But we also know that sin has stopped. Sin has stopped. You, your, your sanctification is complete at death, and there's no more sinning. 
but your salvation has not yet fully been applied to you. Your salvation is completely applied to you on the last day when your body is raised again from the dead. That is when we will rejoice. That is when Isaiah 25 is fulfilled and we raise our glasses and we toast to the Lord and we, we enjoy his new creation. This earth, this earth is where we will dwell, glorified. Um, in between, however, there is this death that we all pass through. Unless we're of that generation that uh, will be alive when the Lord returns. That'll be the only generation of believers who will not experience death. Otherwise, we're all going to die. I know that's a cheery thought, I know. And, uh, you know, I think I, post- I did. I posted on uh, my Facebook page, what, um, what hymns and psalms do you want sung at your funeral? And some people think, well, what a morbid thought. And uh, Actually, it's not for you, literally, the psalms and hymns. Um, it's for the people left behind. Your funeral really isn't for you. Because you're going to be enjoying the presence of the Lord, you know. Uh, it's for those who are left, left here grieving, uh, and we're the ones that are sad. But you might think of what do I want, what would I like for people to sing to give them comfort in the Lord because this death has happened. But why? Why do I got to die if Christ has already saved me? Um, well, because we still live in a cursed world, and the full application of salvation has not yet been made to us. You are already now regenerated. You're already now justified. You can't be more justified than you are now. God has declared you righteous. You were already adopted. Uh, So we have this already category. What are you already? Regenerate, justified, adopted. And then you have a not yet. You're not yet glorified. Yeah, sanctified is an interesting one because sanctified kind of goes in both categories a little bit because you are, your sanctification starts yeah, at the moment of your justification, but then this is a progressive, a progressive thing that the Holy Spirit is applying to you. And you, so you're still being sanctified. Very slow process, at least in my life. Maybe you're more sanctified than me. I wouldn't doubt it. So have patience with me, sanctified person. Um, uh, But glorified is something that does not... Now this you will get incomplete when you die, which is what Heidelberg's pointing out. And the, the, the mortality rate in, in uh, you know, people died at a much uh, younger age in the 16th century. And the infant mortality rate was extremely high. Um, and so death was something normal. Death was something that you were confronted with in the 16th century. Death was something that, you know, most churches, I wish we had one here. I wish we had one at every church. You can still see them some places back east. You see them all over in Europe. Churches where there's a graveyard outside. And you walk to church through a graveyard. That's the best piece of architecture any church could have. The best, because a sermon is preached to you. And you go by and you say, oh yeah, there's, there's my grandpa. There's my dad. There's my brother. And that little spot of grass over there, that's where I'm going to be. 
and you're confronted with it. And, and, and then when people died, they, it, this is normal in the Middle, middle Ages and also in the 16th century, 17th century, um, you had an open casket, typically, and family gathered around. In fact, it was really common in England in the 17th century for families to bring the deceased. In fact, I think they still do this in some parts of Italy. Um, it seems creepy to us, I know, but bring the deceased into your home, and the family all gathers and stays the night that night with, you know, grandma dead in the living room in her casket. And it was a time of mourning. And I'm saying those are all good things. Those are good things. Because you're confronted with a reality. You're confronted with the fact that you're going to die. We get up each morning and put on our clothes and brush our teeth as if we're going to go on living forever. But who here knows when he's going to die? It, it might be next week. It might be next year. And that doesn't mean we need to live in fear, um, and, but it should mean that we live with sobriety, that uh, that day is coming. But the, the glorious thing is, when you die, you're, you're with the Lord. You see sinning. It's your entrance into eternal life. This, however, the glorified part, you're waiting for, which happens on the last day. And that happens, that we get that all together. Just like we wait for everyone to get the bread and the wine, and we all partake together. Well, all through the ages, God is waiting until Christ returns, and then all the dead in Christ will rise. What was that question? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, one, my favorite city in the whole world is Florence, and uh, it's, I love Florence. And they have these huge churches there, and my favorite church is Santa Croce. That's where um, all the great people from the Renaissance are buried. But they have hundreds and hundreds of tombs underneath, and some are, you can go through these halls, and some are dated back to, you know, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, and uh, most of them have either a cross or the key row, a little sign for Christ, uh, carved into the, the tomb. They're waiting for the resurrection. In fact, one of the best things you can do on your tombstone is have 1 Corinthians 15, 26, which was a real popular verse. Anybody know what 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says? Without looking? Death, the last enemy, yeah, will be defeated. That's what we're looking for. That tomb is there until that day. So you already have this, but you not yet have that, even when the person, even the body is in the tomb. That's why I say, you know, the same thing, and I, you know, I realize when people are in mourning, we say all kinds of things, but saying things like, you know, oh, you know, he's playing golf on the, hitting on the ninth, you know, um, there's no basis for saying those things. And uh, now's my opportunity to say that. I'm not going to say it to you when you say it when you're in grief. But um, we want to think biblically, and we're looking forward to the time when Christ returns. And, uh, but our death now is not the payment of our, of our sin, but uh, our end to our sinning. All right, question 43. What further advantage do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old selves are crucified, put to death, and buried with him, 
so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may dedicate ourselves as an offering of gratitude to Him. Right, and so the language that's used there, um, you know, we think of a couple places. One big one that pops out, of course, is Romans 6, right? Where um, we have this, we, we have, we've been crucified with Christ. Uh, so, so Galatians 2, um, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, talking about what we have now, the already. Christ's death has given us this already. While we're waiting for this, you know, kind of in two parts, you get this part at death, you get this part on the last day. Um, already, we can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Like the quote I read from uh, uh, Benedetto da Mantova this morning, how uh, Christ's death was my death, his burial was my burial, his resurrection, my resurrection. The, the Bible speaks everywhere in the New Testament uh, in that kind of language in that something has happened as I'm united with Jesus Christ. His death means something for me. Not only does it atone for my sins, but it, not only does it deal with the penalty of my sin, but it also deals with the power of sin over me. So that, that's what Romans 6 is all about. So that I'm no, longer, I'm no longer a slave to sin. That I've been free. I've been freed now, not to sin, but to do what is right. I still have to battle with this indwelling sin because this process is happening, the sanctification process. Um, but uh, I, I have decisively, because of Christ's work, uh, been crucified with Jesus Christ. And so there's, a, there's something new that is happening now in me. The, the old man, excuse me, the old man has been uh, put to death. And the new man has come to life. And that old man still is being crucified. You know, it's being mortified constantly. But, and the new man is coming to life. And this is another reason why, um, you know, we, Paul tells us, you know, put off the old, put on the new. But we need the, the, the life-giving power of God's uh, spirit as he uses the word and the sacrament to you know, taking his law and, and mortifying the old and taking the gospel and bringing to life the new. And uh, it's sometimes a painful process as we're confronted with our own sin. But, um, but we should also be encouraged. You know, that's what, there's, there's some joy in godly grief over our own sin because it means that the old man is being put to death. The old man is being put to death. And it's important that we, we think of the cross, you know, having that kind of power so that the evil desires of the flesh, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, may no longer rule us. Any questions on that? And that means we need to daily offer ourselves, too, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is doing it in us, but our response, then, is to say, yes, I, I, I need to not live in the ways of the old man in that category because I've been moved from this category of in Adam to this category of in Christ. And that's going to affect my life following Jesus. It's going to mean changes and, um, and a reordering of my priorities. So, all right. All right, last one. We may have to spend some time on this the next time we get together because it's a big one. 
Why does the creed add, he descended to hell? To assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Okay, so this is... uh, a wonderful line in the Apostles' Creed that should bring us great comfort. I mean, if you look at how question 44 answers, it's all comfort. It's assurance to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Jesus suffered hell for me. What's confusing is the place that it arrives in the Creed. So if we think about the Creed, okay, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, uh, who was... uh, Think about the progress here. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified. Dead, buried, descended to hell. Third day, rose again. Ascended to heaven. Okay, so... This is the order of the creed. Now, um, I should say, if you, if you, if the, well, first of all, if you notice the Nicene Creed from uh, 325, it went under a few revisions after 325. But 325 is when the Council of Nicaea met, and the first uh, version of the, of the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed, was written. The Nicene Creed, you probably noticed, does not have this line in it, Right? Everybody, anyone ever notice that? It doesn't, the Nicene Creed doesn't have that line. Um, interestingly, um, the, uh, the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed don't have that line. Uh, we don't find them until about 650. So we say, well, why do we use it? Well, two reasons. One... Christ really did suffer hell for us. That brings us unspeakable comfort. If he didn't suffer hell, that means I might still have to. What bothers us is the place it falls, right? Because he said it is finished when he was on the cross. And then he died. So didn't he descend into hell here? And... uh, Reformers like uh, Calvin and Ursinus, who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, would say that's correct. He, he, he suffered hell in his body and soul as he was crucified on the cross. That's right. That's right. Which He was separated from the love of God. He was not separated from the wrath of God. God withdrew his love and 
visited him in wrath. Hell is not the absence of God. You know, rock stars think of hell that way. You know, I'm on a highway to hell. It's going to be awesome. You know, and my, part, my friends are going to be there too. I like ACDC, but that's the stupidest song of all time. <laughs> stupidest song because the lyrics are just ridiculous because, you know, it's not going to be a party. Hell is not a place where hey, we're going to crank up the volume and, you know, we're going to have a keg. Uh, and it's going to be just uh, debauchery. No, God is present and you're not going to like it. God is present everywhere. There's no place he is not present. We tend to have this goofy idea of hell as this place where, oh, it's kind of run by a guy in red leotards with a pitchfork. Um, no, it's ruled by God. It's God's hell. It's not the devil's hell. The devil's suffering there too. Uh, God is going to have, be in charge, and it's going to be horrible. And man right now does not experience the unmitigated anger of God. It's mitigated by what we call common grace, by God's patience, and by God's general, general love of humanity. But um, we can only know his saving love, his fatherly love, through Jesus Christ. And uh, apart from him, uh, we will one day be exposed to the unmitigated wrath of God. And that is the worst thing for anybody to experience. We don't want anyone, we don't want anyone to experience that. If, I haven't, if I've been rescued from it, then we want everyone to be rescued from it that we, that we can uh, bring the gospel to. Okay, but why, why then did the reformers leave this here? Why didn't they just pull it out? Or move it, right? I mean, that's what we do as Americans. We don't like something. <laughs> Get rid of it or amend it. Okay, well, that's fine for a revolution, which we're going to talk about right now. Um, but now think about this for a second. Just, just, just pause and slow down and think about this for a second. 16th century. The, church, the Roman Catholic Church is basically wed to the state all throughout Europe, has enormous amount of power, and confesses the Apostles' Creed in that form since at least the 7th century. In some cases, more, longer. Uh, but in, at least since the 7th century, we know that they confessed it in that form. Now you have people saying, look, we need to reform certain teachings of the church. We've got to reform this, we've got to reform that. And uh, push comes to shove, and now they're outside the church. Or you die, or you, you, know, you have to recant. So now, all of a sudden, for the first time, you have these Protestant churches forming that are confessing things, like the Belgic Confession. And so now you're in the 1560s, okay? 1540s, Council of Trent condemns justification by faith alone, that doctrine, and a whole bunch of other Protestant doctrines. And so Protestants are, they are trying to say, we are Catholics. We are Catholics. We are Reformed Catholics. Oh, that's so good. Let's all say that together. We are Reformed Catholics. Good grief. You know, we, got, we have to say that. That is how the Reformers thought of themselves. Now, if they... They, they, tried, they went to the greatest lengths to show that they are connected to the ancient church. 
And, uh, you know, at that time, I mean, this, it was a given. that this is, this is a given that this is the Apostles' Creed. This is the standard for uh, uh, Orthodox Christianity. If they said, well, you know, you yahoos don't know anything, and, uh, you know, acted arrogantly and said, we're going to move a line of the Apostles' Creed that's been around, you know, for over a thousand years, and we're going to put it up here. How would they have been viewed by uh, the established Roman Catholic Church? Yeah, as a bunch of monkeys. As a bunch of, they're just off doing their own thing. As a bunch of Anabaptists. As a bunch of people who have no regard for tradition, for confession, for creed, for Holy Mother Church, for anything. They, think they are arrogant to the point of thinking they have everything figured out and they're going to do it their way. And the, the uh, reformers were very careful about this to say, no, 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 we're not changing anything unless we have to. And we don't have to change this. We don't have to change this. Not if we define what we mean when we say he descended to hell. And that's what question 44 does. That he suffered hell. Now maybe when we get, come back, we're out of time today, maybe when we come back, we can spend a whole, if you guys want to, we can spend a whole class on um, that line and the couple passages from Scripture like 1 Peter 3 that talk about um, uh, spirits imprisoned, and did Jesus descend into hell, and what does all that mean? I love to talk about that stuff, and I can t- walk you through church history and through the passage if you're interested in that. If you're like, nah, this is good enough, we can just move on. Uh, but either way, um, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get, a, we'll get a, a, a show of hands here or whatever you want to do. Um, but on this point right here, on the fact that Christ did suffer our hell, and the fact that the Reformers didn't move it, because they were, they were careful to show that they are connected to the ancient church. They don't want to move from the ancient church. Are there any questions on that? Yeah, Connie. Couldn't they just change this too? Right, right. Well, that's a good question. So, um, mm-hmm. right. So, uh, what, what's interesting is is that you're, you're, it's a good question you're bringing up. What's interesting is that by saying we're not deifying Mary, we're not deifying the, sta- the saints, they could say that and still confess the Apostles' Creed. But to change the Apostles' Creed would have been major would have been even seen as far worse than you're saying that, you know, we can't pray to saints. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pray with anybody who wants to change the Lord's Prayer. You go do that on your own. That's a different religion, you know. Um, and so I think that this is, I think that they were, they were being wise to do this. And so that's a good example of there were a lot of things where we're saying, you know what, we need to correct this, but they're not going to correct anything unless they have to. It wasn't a matter of personal preference. It was a matter of what is biblical conviction. And, uh, and that word tradition is a good word. It's not a bad word. The problem with tradition is when we exalt it to the point of uh, 
of, of standing over Scripture. And that's essentially what you have officially in Roman Catholic dogma, at least since Vatican I in 1870, where um, the Pope said, I am the tradition, and uh, papal infallibility uh, becomes a doctrine, and now you have tradition over Scripture. So, uh, the Reformers? You know, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, uh, Ursinus wrestles with it a little bit in his, uh, in his commentary, and uh, there's, there's quite a bit of you know, talk about, we, we recognize that he didn't go down into hell after he was buried, because that's a view that a lot of people have, that after Jesus died and he was buried, well, now he went for three days into hell. I got some great quotes. We'll do it. I have some great quotes by guys like Fred Price and uh, Pentecostals that say that what Jesus did on the cross was nothing. In fact, I'll just read. I know we're late, but you know what? It's just because it's not, this is unbelievable. There, this is just to whet your appetite. Fred Price, if you don't know who he is, give God thanks. Uh, He goes, do you, I'm quoting him, do you think that the punishment for our sin was to die on a cross? If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. This guy's rich. No, the punishment was to go into hell itself and to serve time in hell, separated from God. Satan and all the demons of hell thought that they had him bound, and they threw a net over Jesus and dragged him down to the very pit of hell itself to serve our sentence. He's got a different Bible than me. Uh, Then Kenneth Copeland. You all know who Kenneth Copeland is, right? Private jets, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when, when Jesus cried, it is finished, he was not speaking of the plan of redemption. Okay. Uh, there, there were still three days and nights to go through before he went to the throne. Jesus' death on the cross was only the beginning of the complete work of redemption. Okay. It sounds like he says it is finished on the cross. But uh, what they're talking about is he's going to go into hell and suffer for three days. And there's been different views. So now I've got all that recorded, and we can go through the different views of church history and a couple of texts. Um, but I'm with Calvin and with uh, the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Reformed tradition that when Jesus died, his spirit went to be with the Father. He did not go to hell. And his body went into the tomb. And then body and soul came back together on the third day. That hell, what he experienced, was on the cross. The problem is, why do we have it here? Well, because this is what we mean by it. He suffered. So it might be out of order, but it was wise for the reformers not to say, hey, we're going to change that. We're going to move that uh, because we know better. They wanted to show that they are Catholic they're Reformed Catholics. And that's essentially what we are. It's not that the church didn't stop in the Middle Ages, guys. There were Christians. But we are Reformed Catholics. All right, we've got to stop there. I'm five minutes over and in demerit, and the kids are in purgatory. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the catechism and tools that help us, and even the creeds, Lord, which are in, not infallible, uh, but are fallible, and yet, Lord, have been confessed by your people Uh, for centuries. Help us, Lord, we pray, to be clear in our understanding of these things and to confess with the church and rejoice over the truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Um, um, Bless us with rest over the next several hours. Bring us back to worship you this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.